Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. You don't always have to like him, but you have to respect him. The Roy Green Show continues. The Roy Green Show continues on the Chorus Radio Network. This hour, we'll be speaking with the Ontario leader of the uh, Progressive Conservative Party. And Patrick Brown has a situation going on with the Premier of Ontario, Kathleen Wynne, because Mr. Brown said that Kathleen Wynne was on trial in Sudbury, and she wasn't. But the Premier says, well, that's libelous. And she's given him six weeks to apologize. So, initially it was a couple of days, and now it's six weeks. So, we'll talk to Patrick Brown about this situation. That is coming up. Going to begin, though, with, we've talked about him a lot over the last month, Omar Cotter. He was back in court on Thursday, and it's Omar's intent to have the judicial system change his bail conditions. And one of the things he was asking for was freer access or free access to the internet. He wanted also to be able to visit with his sister, uh, Zainab, with, without any supervision. And there were some other uh, questions or, or desires that he had. Scott Newark joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. There are other issues we're going to talk to Scott about today, but former Alberta Crown Attorney, former Executive Director of the Canadian Police Association and adjunct professor at Simon Fraser University. Are we now in for a series of sequels of Omar Khadr in the news? Well, it's, I mean, that's been the reality, hasn't it, since uh, he's returned to Canada. Um, although in fairness, um, you know, Khadr got back to Canada by following the legal process under the International Transfer of uh, Offenders Act when he felt that he was entitled to be in provincial uh, corrections other than federal corrections. He went to court and got a ruling um, when he decided he wanted uh, to be released. Interestingly, rather than apply for parole where he'd, if he denied uh, do, doing what he uh, pled guilty to, that would be a negative uh, factor, he applied for, he challenged his uh, conviction in the United States and then applied for bail. But my point in all of this is that you know what, he has actually followed through uh, and on what he's trying to get through the legal system, and um, this is the latest example of that. Um, so uh, there were a lot of people who were outraged, uh, not only about the, uh, the payment to him, but about this fact that he was again using the system. But I, uh, I 
surprise some people by saying, look, have confidence in our rule of law justice system. And I think what happened here with the court basically denying virtually all of what he had asked for, with one exception, uh, the justice system worked and turned down his requests. One of the concerns that I have, Scott, and uh, what you just said essentially sort of eliminates my concern, I guess, uh, technically, but I still have it. And the, and the concern for me is that once Cotter got the $10.5 million, once he became this cause celebre, I wonder whether Crown attorneys and judges would be sufficiently motivated to make an example, either make an example of him or to really apply the law as it can be applied, or whether they're, they'll take a bit of a hands-off approach to Cotter. Well, that doesn't appear to be the situation in this case. Not in this case. The, the, the judge specifically said, um, you know, there was legitimate reasons, for example, as to why you weren't allowed to associate with your sister Zainab. You uh, produced no evidence to suggest that anything about her has changed, mm-hmm. right? So uh, I think the judge uh, uh, did her job. Uh, she also refused to allow... Uh, Cotter wanted to be able to travel the country freely, and she rejected that. He wanted to reduce the frequency of uh, how often he had to report to the supervisor, and the judge uh, rejected that. And the only other thing he wanted was to get, in effect, greater access to the Internet through different kinds of devices, which she said, fine, but added the conditions, you will not be allowed to access any kind of terrorism-related material. Yeah, no, I, I, I get it. I think no, I get this. Job. I get that. No, I'm not talking about this judge. I'm speaking in a, in a broader sense, that once he became this cause, once he got the $10.5 million and the prime minister justified it, would the system take a more hands-off attitude or approach toward him? Well, that was my own first, question. First of all, he was a uh, celebrity for some people long before he got his $10.5 million. Yeah, but that changes right? everything. He was the, the poster child for this uh, supposed uh, abuse. And I must admit, there was one thing that I was hoping for, that the judge was going to rule, mm-hmm. that in denying his uh, uh, request for the change to the bail conditions, she was going to order costs against him and his lawyers, say maybe in the amount of, I don't know, $10.5 million? <laughs> Paid to the Crown, didn't see that. Though. Maybe next time. <laughs> maybe next time. Because <laughs> you know there'll be a next time with Omar Khan. Well, this is what I'm thinking. There's going to be sequels. Of course. And, and this is nowhere. He'll want those bail conditions... Um, loosened and changed and you'll yeah, keep but at you know it what i mean it was uh, i think you and i talked about this uh, uh i would have been curious how did he happen to, given the restrictions that were already on him that he wasn't allowed to have communications except in a defined way with his sister zainab how did he happen to know that she was coming to canada well that's the good question isn't it no, and I, I know that's the question you wanted answered Yes, well, if I, do, I must admit every now and then I sometimes I regret not being in the courtroom. I sure would have liked to have asked that one. So what should we assume, and why wasn't that question asked? Well, uh, I, I, you'd have to have been there and, and known the case and the way that it unfolded. That's more of a procedural thing than anything else. Mm. But, um, I, you know, I, I suspect uh, uh, they will probably attempt to find ways that they can reduce the restrictions on him. He is somebody who has, uh, you know, he chose to go the route of seeking bail rather than applying for parole. And, you know, let's face it, the reason why a lot of these guys don't get parole is because they don't have any remorse. They don't admit that what they did was wrong. 
And if Carter had taken that position, which is what his public position is now, that would have worked against him on parole. So we applied for bail instead. But again, in fairness, there has been no allegations, other than the theoretical one I raised, about him breaching the conditions of his bail. So he's got a you know relatively good track record of complying with the conditions. And my real point about all of this stuff is that this is something that should be governed by our rule of law. No special treatment for Omar Khadr one way or the other. Let the our rule of law legal system handle it. All right. Um, Alan Schoenborn, not criminally responsible, killed his three children. So now he uh, he has um, uh, not... What's the, what's the terminology that he's, well, he's not going to be dealing with? It's a little complicated. Schoenborn was uh, found not criminally responsible for the uh, killing of his three children right. on the basis of him suffering from this mental disorder. After the, that uh, finding was made... The former conservative government changed the law to create what was, in effect, a uh, designated high-risk offender status for certain non-criminally responsible offenders. What that really did, Roy, was that it changed the way that the mental health system dealt with these high-risk offenders. It uh, restricted the kinds of uh, release that they could actually get, and it changed, it extended the period from when they had to have their reviews, because the normal procedure is every year these people get to have a review. And so I think correctly the government moved to, in effect, differentiate between the highest risk offenders. And so when Schoenborn applied for his review, this would be uh, a couple of years ago, the British Columbia Crown's office said, well, no, and they brought an application under the new legislation to have him declared a high-risk offender. And there were some issues as to whether it applied retroactively or not. That, that's really not the point because they had a a long hearing and the judge decided that he did not meet the criteria for the high-risk offender designation based essentially on the uh, forensic psychiatric evidence that he was doing well under treatment. Yeah, but that's starting to sound, uh, Scott, that starts to sound a whole lot like Vince Lee to a lot of people. Uh, No kidding, no kidding. And what happened was that the, uh, the court found that he didn't meet the criteria. That's what the B.C. Crown said, okay, well, we're going to consider whether we're going to appeal it. And the story that was in the news this week is that they decided, they changed their mind, they've decided on review of the decision that they're not going to appeal it. Mm-hmm. So he's, he will be dealt with uh, according to the way that things have always happened, which, which I think is, is problematic, because while it is true that, you know, the, we have a distinction made between people who are found to be not criminally responsible because of mental disorder, it doesn't change what they did. And I would suggest that in some circumstances, the nature of what it is that they did is something that should be directly relevant and should have a different application as to how they are treated by yeah. the mental health. And there is no way that somebody like Carol Dedelli should be made to feel irrelevant Correct. throughout the entire process, which is exactly what Carol was made to feel like. I've talked to her so many times yeah. on and off the air right. over the last years. She deserved far better treatment than she received, and Vince Lee got far more, far better treatment than he uh, yeah. deserved. And, and, you know, there's a similar application. And Schoenborn, too. As well, even on high-risk offenders. We, uh, we, we tweak the rules a little bit, but people who are, den- you know, remember the, uh, the Clifford Olson, yeah. right? And he'd go back to court every year for another parole hearing just to torment the victims. Yeah. And, and you know, I have uh, great concern for people who are dealing with 
significant mental health issues. It's not a case of ignoring or just pushing aside people with mental health issues. But at some, at some level, you have to be responsible for the act that you committed at well, some level. Whether they're even specifically responsible, I think there's a balancing of interests that needs to take place, which is this guy isn't in here because of the color of his hair. It was a horrifically violent act that yes. should be taken into account. Yes, because he's not. The public ramifications are not the same. And how do you how do you make the case that he's not a high risk offender? How do you make the case that how do you make the case so that the public understands and agrees that someone like Schoenborn or somebody like Lee is not a high risk? You'll never convince me of that. Agreed. My, me either. Now, that doesn't mean that they need to be treated in the same way as somebody who is found criminally responsible. Yeah, no, I, I, absolutely, but I agree. That also doesn't mean that they should be allowed, you know, what day passes to wander around in the communities. And, uh, and then have no criminal record or no record of any kind. So nobody knows if, uh, if, you know, if they're released, as Lee has with a new name. Nobody knows I, what he's how done. How crazy is it that we allow people to change their names? Yeah, yeah. Hold on, we're going to come back with Scott Newark and talk about uh, what's going on with some of the immigration issues. And the border guards of this country have um, a very strong views, and Scott has an association with uh, the Customs and Immigration Union. And there's another issue that we want to talk to him about, and I'll get to that right after this. Direct, hard-hitting, no-holds-barred. The Rory Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Emails all night long, emails all night long about the issue of tax fairness and fairness generally. And the tweet that I, uh, that I posted about um, somebody suggesting or insisting that $150,000 a year is wealth and that same person spending $215,000 off taxpayers' money on a vacation. Uh, that got a lot of traction. Now, I received an email from Kathy on this issue of tax fairness. I'm going to read that to you in about uh, 12 minutes. And it's it's really, really interesting, interestingly written. Back to Scott Newark, former Crown attorney and uh, former senior policy advisor to the Federal Minister for Public Safety, adjunct professor at Simon Fraser University. Now, on this issue of, Mr. Newark, on the issue of the border, on the issue of border security, on the issue of making our uh, the poorest uh, the reality of our border, what what's the suggestion? And I know you have an association uh, of some kind with the border union guards union. Um, what's the what's their frustration? What what needs to be said about this? Um, well, it's uh, I think the disappointment that uh, the frontline officers have, which is the the same as you know most Canadians, is that our government uh, doesn't appear to be doing anything about it. You know, their go-forward strategy to deal with this situation of the flood of illegals entering Canada from the United States, their, you know, their strategy is to buy heated tents. Uh, this is a complicated issue. Actually, I, I wrote a piece it's on, for anybody who's interested in the details, it's on the uh, Frontline Security Magazine uh, website. Uh, it is admittedly complicated, but uh, instead of actually acknowledging there's a problem, and sitting down with the Americans and trying to get them to reopen this safe third country agreement that is a big part of the problem, you know, our government has 
putting out messages that they're, they're saying, oh, well, these are irregular arrivals. That's nonsense. They're illegal. They're deliberately entering between ports of entry because the Safe Third Country Agreement doesn't apply to those locations. And then, uh, you know, the, uh, the government has actually, the, the prime minister actually said that, uh, oh, well, there's no advantage for people, you know, entering between ports of entry. Of course there is. Even Janet Dent from the Council of Refugees said that was completely incorrect. Well, they wouldn't be doing it if there weren't an advantage. Of course. Now, add to that the fact that the, uh, the number of frontline officers has decreased by about 1,200 positions. That includes in the intelligence sectors as well, too. Uh, since a program, I think it was back around 2010, 2011, called the uh, Deficit Reduction uh, Action Plan that was supposed to reduce bureaucracy, but in CBSA's case, ended up reducing frontline operations. And, you know, you've just got this incredible frustration at a government that doesn't seem to be willing to effectively deal with this situation. Yeah, you talk about uh, 1,200 positions being gone, and then you ask yourself, well, what can you do to, to replace you can't really replace the bodies, but what can you do to, to fill in at least some of the gaps? And technology comes into play, and uh, yeah, the, 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 just the, Trav- the Travis Vader case in, uh, in Alberta. Uh, sure, let's, uh, let's, let's use that, because one of the things that I had suggested was asking information to get you know, statistics on what the consequences are of all these people entering there, how many of them end up you know, getting warrants for and, you know, often you and I end up talking about sort of the negative cases, but every now and then there are some positive ones, and this is a good example. The Travis uh, Vader uh, murder case that uh, you uh, raised, Vader is the, uh, the guy who was uh, convicted of the uh, murder of the uh, uh, two uh, seniors, uh, but he was out on bail uh, while he was facing these murder charges, and he had conditions on him that included no taken drugs, and he also was... Uh, wearing uh, electronic uh, monitoring, uh, dev- an ankle uh, bracelet device. Uh, and during the course of, the, while the trial was going on, he had to submit a, for a drug test, and the cops were pretty sure that he was taking drugs. And when they got the results back that showed that he was taking drugs, and he knew he was going to get found because he was taking drugs, they went to the location he was supposed to be at, and he was gone. He had taken off. But thanks to the electronic monitoring that's supplied by a little Alberta company called Safe Tracks uh, GPS Canada uh, that has just the most sophisticated technology going. Uh, they were able to track him as to where he was, and they went and they got him and they found him before he was able to commit any other offenses. Mm-hmm. And it's a good example of the kind of proactive use of technology that can help actually prevent further offenses. And you think of a guy like this, okay, that knew that he was about to get caught on something. Thank God that this technology was able to uh, to help prevent any future crimes yeah. being committed. Yeah. Now, I'm just going to leave you with this, and I mentioned it briefly uh, last hour, and that is I saw a term that was used by Associated Press earlier this week. And, of course, the Associated Press style book becomes the Bible for um, news writing for, for quite a number of news organizations. They came up with, get this, undocumented citizen. Undocumented citizen. Undocumented citizen. I want you to include that in your next article in Frontline Magazine. I'm uh, curious as to their application of it, but, uh, you know... Um, yeah, got to go, buddy. As always, ask the right questions. Scott, Scott Newark on The Roy Green Show.